Hello and welcome or welcome back to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast all about big picture conversations with influential people on the topics of nature and humanity and oh my goodness, do I have an incredible story to share with you today. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I'd like to start by acknowledging that this podcast was recorded on Arakwal land, part of Bunjalung country, and I want to pay my respects to members of the Bunjalung community and First Nations people all around Australia and the world. This conversation in particular was recorded live in Brunswick Heads as the second of five live interviews as part of the Resilient Byron and Renew Fest Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow. This is where I am collaborating with Resilient Byron and Renew Fest to hold community forums in villages all around the Byron Shire with the aim of bringing people together to discuss and action how we can create resilient communities. It's been an absolute pleasure to be involved in these forums and I can't believe the community involvement and enthusiasm. It's been just awesome to see. I really can't wait to bring you the rest of these live conversations with some other incredible Byron Shire locals. So my plan is I will be releasing these live convos in between my regular fortnightly long form episode schedule. So my guest today, Zara Naruzi is an Iranian born woman, activist and author of the book My Life as a Traitor, where she details her experience standing up for her beliefs in her native country of Iran. As a university student, she started standing up for women's rights by writing articles, organizing peaceful protests, and asking questions of the regime as to why women were denied basic rights, all perfectly reasonable and fair things to do. Or so she thought. At just 19 years old, Zara was arrested. She was held in prison, questioned, tortured, and starved just for what she believed in, just for speaking out. Zara tells her story with such deep reflection. She goes into detail the impact it had on her youthful optimism. And she recounts the very limited human connection she had whilst she was going through that experience and how important that was for her. She then goes on to describe how impactful our beliefs and actions can be and says that our ideas in our brains are a superpower that can have enormous impact on those around us. But here's the thing, we need accountability. Just like holding these community forums or any other sort of movement, you know, we all want connected neighborhoods. We all want renewable energy. We all want resilient communities. We all want local organic food. But Zara asks, what are we willing to contribute? More importantly, what are we willing to give up? Is it some of our time instead of, you know, watching Netflix? Is it opening our doors to someone facing rental challenges? Is it paying more for the things that we know are better? You see, it's not enough to just say, this is what we want and expect someone else to deliver it to us. We have to take action. And we have to bring to life the ideas and beliefs that we express. Zara's story and her way of speaking to us is so real. And she truly set the tone for the rest of the forum. I had people coming up to me after our conversation saying, wow, that really put things into perspective for me. 
And that was exactly the intention of holding this conversation. So I hope it does for you too. So please enjoy this live conversation from the Brunswick Heads Resilience and Regeneration Roadshow with Zara Naruzi. As John mentioned, uh, my name's James. I I um, have been running this podcast for a little while now, and it's really inspired by this concept, which is the overview effect, which is this paradigm shift, this experience that astronauts have when they first go up into space and they first look back on our world and they get this sense of wonder and awe and really they describe it as a, a, a complete cognitive shift in the way that they see and interact with the world and many of them describe it as coming back to earth profoundly connected to community or nature or spirituality or a variety of things and I just love that concept. So I've been running this podcast for a little while now interviewing people that I find inspirational and interesting guests um, and I'm just so grateful that I've been able to partner with uh, Resilient Byron and Renew Fest and I just want to say thank you to not only Resilient Byron and Renew Fest but everyone here today for just showing up. You know we're all here, we're all residents of this region and we're all taking time out of our own personal lives, our weekends to show up and meet here and gather and talk through these, these issues and the future we want so uh, it's wonderful to gather today. My guest today here, Zara, Zara Naruzi is... I'm going to read through your bio here, Zara. (laughs) An Iranian-born author with a double degree in media and languages living in Australia. In 2007, she published My Life as a Traitor, a biographical account of her life and imprisonment. The book won the award for Australian Small Publisher of the Year in 2006 and was shortlisted for the 2008 Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Zara spent most of her life working as a human rights and environmental activist, as well as working on community projects in Byron Bay, where she resides with her husband and two children. Her spiritual connection to the ocean and her strong conviction to save and protect what she loves has led her to be a different kind of water woman. Her main focus remains in the coastal town where she finds the beauty of life in strengthening her community and bringing people together via art, music, comedy fundraisers and ladies group surfs. She continues to write, most recently publishing an essay in the anthology, How They See Us, edited by James Atlas. Please welcome Zara Naruzi. Zara, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. I wanted to... So we're here to talk about resilience and... I would love if we could first start by learning a bit about who you are and your story. And so I guess thinking of that, the overview effect that um, this podcast and that, that I introduced, have you had a similar moment in your life, a personal experience that has shaped your view on the world in quite a profound and dramatic way? Um, I had to think about this question because I listened to the podcast and I... Okay. Um, and I wondered about the one moment and the answer is that I have had a few of them and I think um, going back the first one has to be when I was 12 years old I got given the news that my dad's cousin 
who was at the time a university student and she was 24 years old, she was arrested because she had joined the Communist Party and at the time the Iranian government didn't like that. I don't think they still like it. And um, so she was arrested and was never seen again. And I remember um, at the funeral listening to my dad talking about what an incredible young woman she was and what an honor it is to um, be remembered for having such a strong conviction. And I remember thinking she got killed because of her ideas, because it was so powerful that the government was scared of her. And as sad as it is to this day, not knowing what happened to her and losing her, um, I remember thinking that as a human, what we hold in our brain and our ideas is a superpower and what you can do with it and the actions that you can take with it, what an impact it could have in your life and um, the people around you. And um, it became really precious, like what I thought about and what I wanted to do with my thoughts and who I wanted to share them with. And um, it kind of started from there and growing up in a family that was highly political at every dinner conversation was about what was happening in politics. and. Um, there was no way out of it in a way. We were always gonna be um, involved and when I, so that was the first moment. That was the first moment that I kind of realized that it really matters. It really matters what you stand for and um, it really matters to take actions and it really matters what you believe in. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, when I was at university myself, I got involved in the students protest and politics and started writing articles and um, doing similar speeches only those ones had a much bigger consequence and I got arrested when I was 19 and um, spent a month in prison where I was questioned, um, tortured, starved and all of that because of what I believed in and for taking a stand and um, that was another moment. <laughs> that was another one. And um, from there on, um, it never stopped. I think once you realize the, um, the, once you learn about the amount of injustice that goes on around the world, and it goes from human rights to environmental issues, and soon after I realized the same governments that do inflict trauma on people are the same government that do the same thing on the planet and it all becomes you know everything is connected and you start losing it a little bit because you don't know what to focus on and then you go okay one thing at the time you know at the time where I was in women's right was the biggest thing where I grew up and so that's where my focus was and that's how I ended up in prison and and, and so what was that like so you <laughs> you were a student you were speaking up for ideas that are not crazy, that were just about equality and justice. Yeah, I mean, reading, a, reading your story, you weren't even allowed to wear coloured shoes, right? There's, yeah. there's, you have the story of the pink shoes, and you, you had to wear black, and you were under this oppressive regime, so all you were doing was speaking out for what you believed was right and fair and then to experience being taken to prison and not just 
a, a, a cushy Australian country prison. This was a serious yep. prison with some serious people in there. What was that like? Um, when I first got arrested, I was so sure they're going to let me go because I didn't believe what I had done was radical enough or was bad enough or I had just written some stuff about, um, for example, why a woman wasn't given right of the custody if when she gets divorced. The father gets the custody of the children. That has since changed in Iran. But I remember going to the family court with a whole lot of other people and, you know, organizing a protest because of that. My own sister was affected by it. And when she got divorced, her three children were taken away from her because he, their father chose to have the custody and he was given that right. And just watching her suffer through that and not really understanding, no reason behind it rather than the only reason that they were given is a woman is not capable of taking care of a family and children if a man is not present. And you, to me, that was just crazy. And watching her suffer, there was no way that you could sit quiet and sit through that. Not only me, a lot of other women were feeling the same way. So in my head was just was just wanting to argue these, these things with with the government and you think okay well we can we can talk about this you know she's capable she's this she's that why isn't she given the right to look after her own children but what we didn't realize that um that's not how things work it's not about giving a children to a mother it's about giving power and giving um a woman identity and giving her credit and from there on giving her a voice that's what they didn't want to do and to stand up and to speak against that turned out to be a crime and it was a crime against the state and then before I knew it I was on the stand and being charged um, for treason mm. for, for, for something that happens daily all around the world and you see all the students just writing letters or going to a protest as we do in Byron all the time and, um, but a different regime and, and so you say you, when you first went in there, the, these were common sense and are common sense beliefs and thoughts that you had and have. But when you first went into prison, you thought, oh, I'm, they're not going to hold me here. This is not, I'm not a prisoner. I'm, I've done nothing wrong. Did that change? It changed thoughts? really quickly. Yeah. Because um, they made it really clear that they have no concern for my well-being. As a matter of fact, the only reason um, that they had taken me there, they, they were um, arresting a lot of people in that period of time, but mostly to set an example for families and for other kids that were taking onto the streets. And um, intimidation was a big thing. And you, you sat on a table and they have photos of you everywhere from you leaving your house to getting in a bus and leaving the university and who you've interacted with, who you caught up to have a coffee with and there's all these photos and every photo you have to explain who this person is, what's your relationship to them and um, who's supporting you, who's giving you money to run this protest, how are you people connecting because back then there wasn't even any internet or Facebook groups or anything like that and um, it, everything that we did um, at university happened so organically and same thing I feel like right now, people who are in room, you put a call out for the purpose that you believe in, and people who believe in it, they 
come in and they join in. But they made it look like it was much bigger brain behind it and much um, more powerful than what I thought it was. When they were explaining it back to me that what I had done, the way they were phrasing it, it sounded, um, it made me look like Mm. some radical activist, but I was just a kid. Yes, I was an activist, but I was a kid who had such a strong conviction that I thought I can change the world. Mm. But um, when they started, um, when they leave you in a room for hours and sometimes for 48 hours and there's no food, there's no talking, there's no connection and there's no answers and the fear I I feel like the biggest fear for a human is a fear of unknown if you know what's going to happen you could kind of talk yourself into it you go okay I can do this it's only going to be an hour I can work with that but not knowing what's going to happen and just being kept in the dark very quickly I realized that this is no joke and I may never leave this room again and I kept thinking what about if they forget this place is mm. so big, although I hadn't seen it because I was blindfolded, but I kept thinking, it's so big. How do they remember who they've put in each of these rooms? And what about if they forget that I'm in this room? And um, you go through all these emotions, you know, you're terrified, you're hungry, you're in pain physically and um, mentally. And that one minute you want to die, the next minute you're so angry and you want to fight back, and the moment you fight back, the consequences are much bigger and you go, I could just shut your mouth. And I remember one day, um, the guy that was questioning me every day, he came in and I, I still, to, to this day, I still don't know why I asked him, I, like, I asked him how he was, like we were friends, and I, he, it made him really, really angry and he immediately hit me across the face and I, and he thought I was being, I was being a smartass, just asking mm. a question and how he's, he, he made it very clear that we're not friends. You're not to address me or talk to me. Um, you only answer the questions. And I couldn't believe that someone, this person, who spoke my language, who had been raised by a family, presumably similar to my family, with... Uh, the love of a Persian mother sat on the same table similar to mine and was fed and was loved at some point in his life how he was capable of inducing so much trauma on me a a young girl that like what kind of power was he feeling and what kind of brainwashing he had been through now that I think that he didn't see the human in me and my actions to him was so great and so threatening to his beliefs that he felt absolutely comfortable to do what he was doing. Mm. Did, did those moments and that experience, did that break your sense of optimism? You talked about having, being idealistic and wanting to change the world and then going through that experience, did that change your outlook on the world afterwards? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, I think what I think is it's quite shocking when you realise that humans are so capable of doing this to each other. Mm. Um, I mean, you read um, history books of what the kings have done and what the emperors have done and the amount of trauma that they've inflicted upon everyone, and you you always wonder what kind of person would do that. And 
it doesn't really take much. Like an ordinary person who has most likely had an ordinary life is very much capable of doing that if they have put in a position and they have made believe that what they do is the right thing. Um, I think that was so shocking and terrifying that made me made me really wonder about what I would be doing, like mm. even questioning myself, going, am I ever going to do that to someone? Am I ever capable of doing that to someone? And, and giving him reasons, almost cutting him a slack, going, what about if, what about if they've told him you have to do this, otherwise we kill your family? Or what yeah. about if, like trying to come up with excuses even for him, and, but now with what I know about life and politics and what's been happening, I just, I absolutely believe in the power of brainwashing and what people get told. I mean, all these people that go and kill in the name of something or in the name of someone is a similar thing. If you go, goes back again to the power of um, your ideas and what you believe in and what you're willing to give and what you're willing to do for your ideas. Those, those personal human connections and moments are so important and influential. I mean, you just I hadn't heard you speak before about that experience with the guard just asking how are you and him reacting like that. Um, and it's, it's almost like, it sounds like he had to react like that to convince himself of the regime in which he operated. Um, but you talk about a few of the other human interactions that you had whilst you were in prison that kept you, maybe gave you some sense of connection to other humans or other humanity. Can you, can you touch on those? There was a guy... Um he was the the way that these rooms or the cells were there was a um like a doctored air conditioning kind of system but it was connected you could hear other people through them and sometimes there was no one around in the rooms but there was a guy who was in a cell above me and he kept talking to me um I still don't know how many years he had been there or what his real name was but he was telling me stories and he kept yelling someone's name and wishing someone's to be dead and he um he kept talking to me about like he was telling me to do i didn't even know anything about yoga he was telling me can you put like your head behind your head your leg behind your head and can you do this can you do it and i'm thinking what are you talking they're about to kill us like what are you talking about and i and i kept asking him how long you've been here have you seen this person who interviewed you and who which room have you been in and sometimes he had an answer and sometimes he didn't but I remember him singing, singing lots of songs, and it was so strange to hear any sound of music because music is such a comforting, soothing um, sound, and to be, in, to be in a place like that, and just, just that, I remember as soon as he started singing, I started crying, just remembering that, oh my God, you know, we might not die. Mm. There might, somebody might come and save us from here. And, listening to him going oh don't worry the food is not too bad or they're going to let you have a shower or he told me oh soon they're going to come and shave your head and I'm going you're crazy they're not going to come and shave my head which they did and um just having him he kind of became my saving grace even listening to him in the first few days I just wanted him to shut up he just would not stop calling this woman's name and it was driving me mad and but 
they took him out of the cell for a couple of days and I I missed, strangely enough, I mi- he was my only company, he was the only person mm. that um, I could talk to and when they brought him back I could I could tell from the way he was talking that he'd been hurt, he'd been into, into an integration room and um, he was in a lot of pain and he was laughing and then he was crying and then we were both crying and just sharing that with him and just knowing there's somebody else right there who knows exactly how I felt. Because sometimes when you go through something terrible, people come and say, I know exactly how you feel. And I always say, I can, I'd never say that to anyone because I don't think that's true. Mm. Um, and I remember thinking, I know exactly how you feel the relief when they finally are done with you and they open the door and they throw you back into your cell and you're so looking forward to that door shutting behind you. And um, when they put him in, and I remember just talking to him saying, it's okay, you know, and just having that interaction with him became my saving grace. And, Mm. but after a while he was like, they took me to a different room and I I still don't know if he's there or not, or if he's ever been released, but um, yeah, he was my only other, I had a couple, but he was the main one. Yeah, wow. It's an incredible story, and those for me, what I guess what I hear in that and is that those those human connections, even in unbelievably traumatic times or experiences, are so important for keeping us connected. And and I guess if you know if I could try to draw a synonym to kind of culturally and what the world is going through with environmental destruction and and all sorts of issues that I guess we face, is how do we learn from that you know that wisdom that you're sharing and build those connections with our, within within our communities and not be so isolated in our individual homes and cut off from one another um i do want to ask you about resilience which is what we're here for um the theme on which we're here for and i'm one thing that i've been pondering around resilience is that it's not necessarily for me just about going back to the way things were you know resilience isn't just a change happens, how do we get back to what was? For me, um, I've been kind of pondering when, when a change happens, when a shock or a shift or something happens, a void kind of opens up for new paradigms and new beliefs to come in. And I think, again, culturally, we're perhaps seeing that in a world of extremism, conspiracy theories, political beliefs, whatever you have it, we're seeing a shock, a shock in the world has happened and new paradigms come in. Um, I guess given your experiences and what you've gone through, have you had a similar sort of um, experience readjusting to new paradigms and change and what have you learned from that and how would you, I guess, apply those? How would you say that we as a community can set ourselves up to grow and evolve from those kind of changes? Um, well, I grew up in a post-war Iran and they, um, they, I grew up in com- like a small community. Each suburb was their own little community that they had to be completely self-sufficient and resilient because the trucks had stopped coming. There was no food, there was no... The shops were closed, everything was rationed and everything... Um, even if you had money, you couldn't buy anything. So I think we were forced to become self-sufficient and resilient and we were forced to open the doors and become 
truly become one as a community. I feel like I've seen so many different groups in Byron over time trying to create a sense of community. Not that we don't have it, we have it really strongly, I think, all around Northern Rivers. But um, I think mm, first thing first is to really believe as an individual that your well-being highly relies on the well-being of the community that you're part of. And what is, like, is that relationship important to you? Like, the relationship that you have to your neighbour, to your other neighbour, to the bigger community, to your country, um, how important that is for you and what are you willing to do to protect it and what are you willing to let go of to protect it? Like with what we've been through in the past 12 months, like since the bushfires and then the COVID, I'm totally with you. The way that things were didn't serve us that well. So to go back to it, it just feels, it doesn't feel right. I think we could do better. Mm. And I think it's, I mean, it was crazy that the world was falling apart and the main news in Australia and most of the places were about toilet paper. That just was the most bizarre thing that people were not worried about what comes after that and what are we going to do if things got really bad and do you know how to grow food, do you know how to do... Like, all of those questions that I think everyone has been asking since. But I think to establish a healthy community, you really, really need to look within and to see if you're willing to let go of a handful of things. It could only be a handful of things and if you're willing to open your door and really let people in. Um, when there were a lot of people that obviously were homeless after the war, and I remember, well, I'm one of six kids, so we didn't have a really big family home, but it was not even a question where, when everyone was asked to open their homes to other families that had lost their homes in war. So can, how many people can you take in? And I remember we took in a couple who had lost their children they had lost two kids, and this couple came and lived with us, I think around six to eight months. We hadn't met them before, we didn't know them, and, and I remember like doing food runs, take this to the neighbors, do this, do that, and really there were, everyone was, a little bit everyone was in everyone's houses, and everybody was doing everything together. I don't, I don't think that that could be created where we are, but I really think we can do, we could at least get to know each, other's, each other a little bit better and we can at least um, get involved a little bit more. Mm. And if you have a skill set that you can share, I mean, why not? I mean, all these groups like Resilient Barren and the Regen Barren, and I've been, I was telling you, I was reading about it, and I think it's amazing what they've done, all these groups that have been created. Um, but I also think feel like we don't need this many of them. I was reading them one by one. I, feel, I wonder if we could do with, like, simplify it a bit more. You know, if you're interested in farming, this is where you go to. If you're interested in housing, this is where you go to. Um, I was reading, like, some of the streets in, in the Shire have got a group, and half of the street is part of one group, and the other half is part of another group. Mm. I don't really understand I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I wonder if it could simplify it a bit more and make it a bit more accessible. I was reading a research that they had done about the Black Saturdays that happened in Victoria. I was telling you about um, with the fires that they had great um, result um, with 
people who had been severely traumatised, lost family members or homes through fire, but found a lot of comfort to be part of a community group, and that was the most effective one. But they also found out that um, a lot of people felt really overwhelmed mm. because they didn't know what group to join and they felt like they had to be part of everything and they couldn't go to all the meetings and had a complete opposite effect instead of healing. It made them more anxious and it made them um, to be more reclusive and not wanting to do anything at all. So um, I don't, as I said, I don't know the structures of any of these groups, but I, I think what they're doing, what Resilient Byron is doing is quite incredible. And um, I think we're in the right direction, but I also think, um, as I said, that it's the question of what we're willing to do mm. to really, like um, the lady who was talking about the housing crisis, like, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to put our rents down and let people into our home? Because everybody talks about it. Everybody goes, oh, this is a huge problem, but what are you willing to do about it? Yep. You know, we have a, um, we do have a housing crisis. There's a new um, type of homelessness in Byron. All these young people who work in all the restaurants and hospitality places, they're sleeping in their cars. But are we, am I willing to open my door and let one of these kids to come and live with us? I don't know. This is a question I'm asking myself yeah. too. I think, I think those are the exact type of difficult questions we need to be asking ourselves and each other. I mean, something that you said before as well, which is that um, in, your, in your community, in your village, a town where you grew up, if you, if, even if you had money, you couldn't buy things. And so you can imagine, you know, what if we applied that to our world or, you know, or where we live, then money doesn't become so important, does it? Or the prestigious house or the insert object here. It's like, what are you willing to give up? Do we actually need those things? Are they true wealth? Or is true wealth actually being part of and sharing and being held in our community? Um, I was, it's really interesting that I was talking to a um, lady called Dr. Julia Kim. She works for the National Happiness Centre in Bhutan. She's a Canadian doctor who's been hired um, to do a research because they have found that since internet has been introduced um, in their country, the level of happiness has dropped and a lot of young people are um, not feeling as happy as they should because they measure the wealth of the country by the level of their people's happiness. And she had done a lot of interview and they had kind of run like a census and they found that, that the level of happiness has dropped because people are spending time on the internet and they're not connecting mm. in their community. And we were talking about how little they have, how little they have in a country like Bhutan and how genuinely happy they are. And um, she said something that I think it's so true. She said in a country like Bhutan, people are taught to be focused on the 5%, the 5% that they have and is available to them and they would let go of the 95% that they may never have. But in the West, we have been taught to focus on the 5% that we may never have and not use the 95% that is available to us. And I think it, it, it becomes that question again, like where is your focus at? Mm. Do you want to focus on the bigger house that you think you need or look at the one that you already have and really enjoy it and share the one that you don't need. Mm. And um, 
I think that's, as I said, these are the questions that I think everyone has to ask. And it's all well and true that you get in a room with everyone who believes the same thing as you and makes everyone feel good. And, but then what's the next step? Yeah. What are we actually doing? I think, I think that's a, a, a really great question and, and thought for, to ask us all and for us all to ponder, which is, you know, exactly as you say, we all focus on the things that we want. We want these resilient communities. We want connected neighbourhoods and villages. We want renewable power. We want all of these things. But what are we actually willing to give up and contribute to make it happen? Yeah, are we going to stop having watermelons in the middle of winter? (laughs) My mum, the first time she came to Australia, she was horrified that my son was born in August and my husband did a grocery shopping. He came home and he had watermelon. She couldn't believe that we bought watermelon in the middle of winter. She's like, yeah. what are you doing? Where is this coming from? Where are they growing this? And just remember, that's what we did. We only had the food and the fruit of the season and there was no such thing to getting fruit delivered. It feels like such yeah. a lot. Are we willing to even let go of these tiny little luxuries? Totally. Yeah. 100%. Thank you so much, Zara, for you. your time today, for being with us, but also for sharing your story and your wisdom and um and your experiences Uh, those heartfelt stories are actually really important for us to to learn from so i really appreciate it thank Thank you you so so much much for having me thank you pleasure